0: Open to Genesis chapter 2. As we continue to study, we turn our attention back to God's Word, the beginning book of His Word, and only thou, the second chapter, chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done... And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Father, we do praise you for all of the work that you did in creation. Father, we pray that you would continue now to work in us, Lord, to bring us into the image of your Son more and more every hour and every day. For your glory in his name we pray. Amen. Well, God has now spoken. Every word he speaks is true and right, and every other word that you hear from this point on will be just man's word. But we hope that it's helpful in understanding how God would have us to apply and understand these verses. And so, with that, I ask you a question. I ask this question to you What is normal? That's simple, right? That's an easy answer. It's actually not so simple, is it? How do you know what normal is? What, how do you know what the standard is for what's right, what's normal, what's ordinary, let alone what's right and wrong? We rightly think of the Bible. We, we know that God says in the Word of God what's right and wrong, and He helps us, helps us understand the difference between what's good and bad and right and wrong, sin and righteousness, But do we think of God in the Bible informing our ideas about what normal is, about what ordinary and normal is? How do we normally determine what's normal? Well, postmodern sociologists tell us that we should just abandon the concept altogether. There are just too many differences, too many uh, variation in preferences and tastes, so much diversity. Just let it all be. Just let everybody do whatever, and nothing is outside of ordinary. Everything's okay. Now, other people see an instant problem with that approach. Um, You know, what if a person wants to harm other people? What, What if a person wants to hurt others? And so, Well, we'll just limit it to do whatever you want, but don't harm other people. But then harm, hurting and harming people takes on a lot of different definitions, does it? Especially today, words that you say can uh, offend and harm and hurt people in so many different ways. So what sociologists did was about 150, 200 years ago, they started trying to figure out how do we calculate normal versus abnormal? Most people do this or that. That must mean it's normal. Most people don't do these things. It must be abnormal. But the people that they were studying when they came up with these strange lines of what's normal and what's abnormal were relatively similar to themselves. Much of what became considered normal, standard, acceptable in terms of thought and behavior and emotions and expressing those. Much of what is thought to be normal was invented within the last 150 to 200 years based on what has come to be called weird people. (laughs) Now, it's an acronym that stands for Western Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic. So, the people said, let's figure out what normal is. So, they got around a bunch of other people like themselves (laughs) and said, well, here's what normal is. And so, that became the standard. And there is now a lot of work being done within sociology, within psychology, to reaccomplish a lot of original research that was done over the past 150, 200 years because of the realization that what was once considered normal may not be quite so normal after all. What's abnormal may not be outside of the bounds of what's normal. But really, all this has come about because mankind just really isn't very good at determining (laughs) what is normal, what should be normal or standard for life and behavior and thoughts and words. Just because a lot of people do something doesn't mean it's a a right normal, right? Just because a lot of people aren't doing something, they're they're not doing something, doesn't mean that that should be a, a desired out of the ordinary abnormal thing. So who gets to decide what normal is? God does, right? God gets to decide. And this may be kind of a new concept, a new way of thinking about life for us because we get that God says what's right and wrong, but sometimes we don't really understand that God tells us what's right, what's normal, what's ordinary for life. Uh, He's our standard. His word tells us what the standard is, not averages and means and medians and all of the mathematical calculations. It's only when we get away from God's measurement that we have to invent our own. And again, historically, mankind hasn't been very good at that. And that's because we just don't know anything outside of ourselves. We we, we understand ourselves, we understand other people, and we understand the the things that people do. Sometimes we we kind of can observe all these things, but we're not omniscient. We don't see the big picture. We don't see everything. We don't know everything like God does. And that's been true from the moment of creation through today to the end of creation forever. God is the omniscient one. And so God is the one who sets the standard for normal. So let's take this kind of out of the, the big broad Um, ethereal, into something specific. Think about something as standard as a normal week. What is a week? How do we define what a week is? Well, it's seven days. And have you ever wondered how we got to a seven-day week? Why is that the standard measurement? And why is that standard everywhere all over the planet? See, some of our time measurements make a lot of sense. A year is the time it takes for the earth to go around the sun one time, and we talked about how inaccurate we are in measuring that, but that's, uh, that's what it is. It makes sense. A day, well, it's light out, and then it gets dark, and then it's light out again, right? So that makes sense. That, that kind of thing makes absolute sense that we can measure roughly a day and a year, but what about a week? There, there's no reason for seven days in a week. There's a reason for a year, there's a reason for a day, but a week, there's, there's nothing. We can't look around us and say, ah, because the moon is over here or because the sun is in this part of the sky, that means it's Tuesday and not Thursday. (laughs) There's nothing that says, here's the beginning of the week, and then we can kind of count down and see, okay, there's another seven days. We just count seven days and we call it a week. How did we get to that point? We could have had a three-day week. We could have had an 11-day week. And even more interesting, why does everybody use the seven-day week? If you do a little bit of research, you'll find out that ancient Egypt actually had a 10-day week. Early Romans used an 8-day week. And again, that's because there's nothing that just stands out to us that indicates a week is uh, how long a week is. The prevailing opinion among secular scholars is that it, this 7-day week idea came to us through the Babylonians who had seven important celestial bodies, the sun, the moon, the mer- uh, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And th- those became the seven... Symbols of the seven days in a week. And the opinion says that the Jews were influenced uh, during their Babylonian captivity and they took the idea of a seven day week from the Babylonians. And as for how it spread everywhere, it's because the Babylonians were so powerful and influential, they passed that on to the ensuing world powers the Persians, then the Greeks. It spread to India, then from there to China, the Roman Empire, especially when Constantine converted to Christianity. He adopted the seven-day week and made Sunday an official holiday in the Roman Empire. But that timeline doesn't really match up with what God's Word says when when God says this was the plan from the beginning, the seven-day week. And in fact, the Jewish people had these scriptures several hundred years before Babylon came to power and several hundred more years before Israel was even held captive in exile in Babylon. So the timeline doesn't make sense. The standard or the norm for what a week is does not come from markers around us or from anything happening other than God's Word. That's why we have a seven-day week. And we're fully aware that people will poke fun at that idea, that people will disagree with us. But God is the standard bearer for humanity for what's good, for what's right, and for what's normal, even a seven-day week. These verses that we've seen in chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 have provided a standard, a plan, a, a, a norm for what the world is here for. The rest of Scripture will point back to these verses as real, as true. This, this actually happened this way, the way God said it. In fact, the psalmist in the Old Testament in Psalm 33 wrote, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host were let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him, for He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. God has set the standard. He set creation. He set the norm. And Psalm 136 is a, is a beautiful psalm, a very repetitious song about the steadfast love of God that endures forever. And the psalm traces the history of creation and Israel and, and their redemption, their salvation, and none of it was... A legend or myth, as we've talked about before, that this was the standard, the norm. And that's the Old Testament. The New Testament just relies on the, the truthfulness, the, the veracity, the clarity of the Old Testament and the account of creation and how God sets the standard for all things. Uh, you remember that Luke traces gene- Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam, not to a fairy tale creature, but a person named Adam. Jesus used Genesis as reasons. Um, for, against divorce in Mark 10 and Matthew 19, Jesus referred to Abel as a real person, a, a prophet who was murdered in Luke 11. Jesus saw Genesis as real. It's, it's the word of God. And, and God was setting forth a standard even as early as Genesis. And then both Peter and Paul throughout the New Testament in their writings acknowledge Genesis. So this is, this is not something to ignore. It's not something to place alongside other myths from ancient times and, and put it on the shelf and we, we are studying these verses, these words from God, so that we know what he says about life, about life on this planet and life for ourselves. So we're on day seven now, finally completing the creation week. And in day seven, God, in our notes, ceases to create. He ceases to create in, in chapter two, verses one to three. Now, one of the things that we notice about this day is we don't hear God's voice on this day. Every other day of creation, for six days now, we've heard, and God said. Then God said. And simply by speaking, he has spoken every bit and piece of creation that proclaims his glory. He's spoken it into existence. And you think about what it might have been like. I mean, the the immediate... And massive movements of waters and air rushing in between waters and land coming up out of waters and the the deafening sound of waters moving and air moving. It it just must have, thank God, that he hadn't created us yet. (laughs) We probably wouldn't be able to hear after all of these sounds happening so quickly throughout the planet. But suddenly on this day, day seven, there's silence. I mean, there's probably some wind, waves, you know, in the water, maybe some animal sounds, but those massive, colossal movements of of air and land is now over, and God's voice is no longer speaking to bring it all about. He's silent. Let's look more closely at this final day in two parts. In the first part, we're going to see number one in verses one and two, that God finished and ceased His creation work on the seventh day. He finished And ceased. The heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. He had made everything the way that he wanted it, and he was finished. And so now that he was finished, now that he had made it the way he wanted it, he ceased to do it. It's a it's a completeness, a mark of finality. The the majestic and monumental sovereign work of God to create is finished. It includes all of space and earth and air and land and water and plants and animals. On land, in the water, and human beings. This statement excludes any kind of idea that God started the creation ball rolling and then took his hands away, and over the course of millions and billions of years, it kind of went along and then it kind of got to where we are today. No, God started it and God finished it. Three times we see this phrase, all the work that he had done. Three times in these three verses, all the, the work that he had done. The work that he had done. A repetition like that for sometimes, you know, for us, we think, wow, man, that's, that's a lot of, why, why did he do that? It's, it's for emphasis. It's to call out all the work that he had done. There's an element here of praise to God, the recognition of the immensity of all that he's done. Here on the seventh day, we look back at what God has done, we, wow. <laughs> All the work that he had done, it's finished, it's complete, and it's beautiful. But in all that God has done, it's now come to an end. The creation work, chapter 1, verse 1 was the beginning. Chapter 2, verse 1 says that's the end of it. There was nothing that was made by God. There was nothing that was not made by God. It's here. <laughs> Everything made by God is here. Nothing has been left out. From beginning to end, it's all finished. Now, that means that there will never be another addition of a new kind to creation. There have been subtractions, there have been kinds that have gone out of existence, they've gone extinct, but no new kinds. Regarding non-living creation, there's no new universe or earth being created. As for living things, DNA, the building block for life, there's not new DNA being created. There's no new genetic information that's that's coming about. We're discovering a lot of new new discoveries within those, those fields. What there have been are mutations of genetic information within the building block of life, DNA, but nothing's been added. And see, this is important because in the prevailing theory around us, the underlying mechanism for evolution is a series of mutations, random mutations, accidents that happen within DNA, and those accidents, we're told, are sometimes beneficial and sometimes harmful. Now, it's really amazing to read about DNA, and I do not pretend to be an expert, (laughs) but the information out there is, is, is astounding. Did you know that God created DNA to be able to watch for errors, to monitor for errors, and then to fix errors as it's being developed? It's amazing. But some mutations get past or go beyond the ability to detect or repair them, and those mutations are what become interesting for scientists to study. When you read those studies, you see, you begin to see how few and far between the beneficial mutations are. And as you keep reading, you you see how sporadic the beneficial mutations are compared to the vast number of harmful mutations in DNA. And then as you continue to read, you find that they really have not found any exclusively beneficial mutations to DNA. In other words, the random mutations that happen within DNA rarely have a possible positive benefit. If they have some kind of possible benefit, there are trade-offs that are either known to be harmful or unknown yet. But the vast majority of the time, and possibly every time mutations happen, they are not unquestionably good for the organism. Now, this is the basis for the teaching of how evolution came about and how different kinds came about and how, how simple creatures became more complex creatures and how human beings came about, but it has never been seen that there's ever been a single beneficial mutation that was exclusively good for the creature. Not only that, but recent research, I don't know if you saw this in the news recently, recent research has shown that the small changes that happen within DNA to, for a, an organism to uh, adapt to its environment are not random. They've discovered that those those are not random. Certain portions of DNA are remain consistent. Some of them that would be beneficial to change, but not in a random way. So what does this all show us? Well, it shows us that everything that God did has held firm. Life as he made it has continued. And we've seen simple changes and and different adaptations, but we've not seen new kinds being created. We've not seen new DNA material being added. The kinds remain the same, and God has done his work of creation. He's finished the work of creation. There was nothing missing or left out, and so we trust the word of the Lord. We trust what he's told us, that, that the creation was finished. Now, what it does not mean is that God then stepped away from creation or that he stopped working altogether. He's never finished working within creation. Most fundamentally, that's true in him holding it all together, right? He's held it all together. And that's what Jesus taught in John 5. You remember the religious leaders accused him of healing someone on the Sabbath you know he's healing somebody and they don't say wow praise god thank you for healing him no they say how dare you work on the sabbath right the sabbath day you're supposed to, you're not supposed to do any kind of work jesus says no you're missing the point of the whole point of the sabbath jesus said in john 5:17 not only that but my father is working until now and i am working jesus said my father never stopped working he stopped working in creation to to create to bring about but he never stopped working And neither have I. And that's why they came after him, to kill him, because he was making himself equal with God the Father. But the words here are very clear that God finished creating by the time the seventh day came. And this is why it's important. This word finished in verses 1 and 2 means to make an end, means to be concluded, to be finished. It's lacking nothing. And then the word rested in verse 2 means to stop or to cease. Now, sometimes we stumble over that word. We know God rested. Why did he rest? Was he out of breath? Did he, did he need a break? Why, why did he rest? Well, the word means really just to, to stop. He, he, he ceased this work. He didn't get tired. It's almost like Isaiah the prophet was anticipating that question. Isaiah forty twenty eight says almost incredulously, he says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So don't, don't make the mistake that, well, God had to rest because he got really tired after making everything. No, the word rest means he ceased. He stopped. That's enough. He's done. Psalm 147.5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. He, 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 didn't, he didn't grow tired. He was just It was the way he wanted it. So we lift up, we exalt, and we praise the name of this great God for creation. All the work that he had done. All praise to him that he finished the work of creation, but then he didn't stop working within creation. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross? And he had taken our sins upon himself and he was paying the penalty for them on the cross and and he would complete it at his death and he was giving us his righteousness. What did he say there on the cross? But it is finished as we sang this morning. But praise God that even though the work that Jesus did was finished, God wasn't finished working within us. He's not finished to work within us to see and to give us faith and to believe and receive this gospel of Jesus. It is finished. And yet it's ongoing. So the creative work from God was finished. He finished and he ceased. But number, notice number two in verse three that God blessed and sanctified the seventh day. He blessed it and he sanctified it. And it's interesting because nothing really happens on this day. It's that day of relative silence. But God blessed it. It was the first day of no creation work, the first day that was going to be like it for every other day that came around. There was no more creative work for God to do within nature, within creation around us. It's all in place. It's the way he wants it. It's the first day of having everything just right. It's beautiful. It's perfect. It's complete. And then he he blesses it as a success, and then he sets it apart. He makes it holy. So that means that it's a day like every other day from now on, except it's a day that we intentionally purposefully set aside, unlike every other day, even though there's nothing that sets it apart. And again, no, no markers out there in, in, the, in the celestial bodies that say this is Saturday or this is Sunday, but we set it apart. And on this day that's set aside, it's, it's for the purpose of looking back at all that God has done, and to this point it's been the six days of creation bringing everything about. So notice that God is... is God is giving us this pattern, and God is the pattern that we are to follow. God sets this standard. Again, he could have formed creation in six seconds or six hours, right? But he created it in six days for the purpose of setting aside the seventh day and setting the standard for us for what's normal, what's ordinary, what life should look like. Now, as we've seen throughout our study Whenever mankind notices a, a division, a, a block that God has created, that he has ordained, mankind sets out to challenge God's rule there. Mankind sets to, to challenge his standards, his divisions. That's true in, you know, that's the essence of sin. That, that's what rebellion looks like, right? God says this, no, we say that. When God said that mankind... Uh, did not create the universe, when when God says that evolution did not create the universe, that he did, mankind says, well, we think we know better. (laughs) We think that it was all an accident. When God says how he made mankind and and how mankind is distinct from animals, mankind says, no, God, we we don't think that. We think that we're just a little farther along than other animals. When God says this is what male and female are, when when God decides what a day is and what a year is and what a week is, mankind challenges those so don't be surprised if eventually somebody challenges the seven-day week. As a matter of fact, the last time that was happened in a, in a famous way, an infamous way, was the God-rejecting, atheistic, communist regime of the USSR in 1929. They tried to go to a five-day week, and there would have been 72 weeks in the year because what they looked at was in this communist ideal, We have five days of working and then two days where everybody stops working and they take a day off. Let's lop off those two days of the weekend and make sure that everybody's working as much as possible. So everyone was assigned a random day off on a five-day week. So 24 hours a day, 80% of the workforce is working because we need to be productive. We need to be producing in this communist ideal. Well, it didn't work because family and friends were randomly assigned different days. The only time you'd ever see somebody was, was when you were going to drift off to sleep when you got home before they went off to work. So they never saw each other, and it didn't work, and there was too much complaining. So after two years, in 1931, they went to a six-day week. So I said, no more of the four-on, one-off, random schedule. Everybody now works five-on, one-off, and we'll, we'll get through it that way. The whole idea, the entire idea was to make the population loyal to the state and to eliminate all competition from God or church and just work. That was the whole idea. That was the whole premise for doing this. Christians, Jews, Muslims, religious people couldn't meet on the the day of the week that they were off. They couldn't meet together. They were too exhausted or they were on the wrong days off. It didn't work. It actually ended up decreasing productivity because God's standard said you should be working six days and taking one day of rest as stopping the work. So after 11 years, they finally gave up. They said, forget, it's not working. So mankind has attempted to challenge even God's seven-day week because God set this system up. He set it apart with a blessing. He set up this standard and it's important to note that this seven-day week was a pattern that God set up at the beginning, regardless of nationality. Genesis was written to Israel, but it was not written exclusively to Israel. And this was before Israel was even a nation yet. This was something that God intended for creation. So he ensured that it would spread throughout and become part of the normal standard. But again, he didn't set a, pad- he didn't set a marker for it, right? Right? there's no natural signals. Throughout history, it's most likely true that we have lost track of which actual day the seventh day was when God created. We haven't kept track well enough. Uh, those people that do believe that we have are the most likely ones to insist that uh, we will worship on this day and this day only Saturday, and everything else is wrong, and, and you are offending God when you, when you worship any other day. But see, if that's what God wanted, He could have made that marker, he could have said, here's what, here's what it means. This is the end of every week or the beginning of every week. But he never did that. And In fact, if you go into history and you look at how we came up with our understanding of days and, and calendars, it took more than 300 years for all of us to get onto the same Gregorian calendar that we use today. When it was adopted for much of Europe, 10 days were skipped to get onto the right marking of days and weeks and months and years. For the U.S., the U.K., and Canada, by the time we switched over to the Gregarian, Gregorian calendar, 11 days had to be skipped. So, so there's no way that Saturday now is the same as what the Saturday was when God finished creation. We, we don't know which day it actually was. We just know that there should be seven. By the time Turkey switched, it had, they had to, in 1926, they had to skip 13 days just to get on the right track. So I very seriously doubt that we've kept such good track that we know exactly which is seven. Like we could divide everything into seven and find out what day God created everything. We haven't kept that good a track. But the idea for, for God in his pattern was for us to, to work these six days and take a day off. And to take a, take a day and to look back at all of the creation that he's done and be in amazement of that. To worship him for that. Early Christians began to meet with the the Jewish people that they had come out of on the Sabbath, on the seventh day. But as relations soured, they met exclusively on the first day of the week because that's when they could be together as Christians and that's when they could celebrate the resurrection of the Savior. That's how we've come to meet on the first day of the week rather than the seventh. But God has blessed that. He's allowed that in His Word. But what we want to consider this morning for just a minute is, what are these days for? This day of ceasing, this day of stopping and, and, and finished completion, what is this day for? Well, God set it up in the Old Testament as the Sabbath, the seventh day for the Jewish people. And we meet on Sundays, but we're using this day as, in a similar way that the Jewish people did in the Sabbath. So if, if his pattern in the Old Testament is any indication to us, then we can learn from what the Sabbath was and what we should be doing on this day of ceasing from work, if possible. What should we be doing on the Sabbath rest, the, the ceasing of work together? Now, the idea for a day of worship came out of this pattern that God expected for us. So what does he want us to do with this day? Now, everything that God gave to Israel is not directly applicable to us, but the principles always are, right? Okay, so that's what we're going to look at as we look at five instructions for what this day should be in the Old Testament. The first one, number one, is that this day should be a day of praise to God for provision, a day to praise God for provision, for providing for us. The first time that God teaches Israel about the Sabbath, they have just come out of Egypt And he says, don't do any work. Don't do any of your normal work. Set aside the day to praise God. Don't do any work. And so when Israel came out and they saw that there was a man gathering sticks, he was doing regular work. But God said in Exodus 16, look, uh, you have five days where you're going to gather manna. You're going to gather holy bread that I'm going to rain down on the land. And you're going to gather this for five days. On the sixth day, you're going to gather twice as much because during those first five days when you gather it, you're going to only gather what you need for that day. And you're going to eat that. And then what did Israel do the first time they had it? They, they kept some back. They said, I got to save this for later. And the next day it had worms in it and it stunk. And they said, whoops. God said, not whoops. I told you don't do it, right? So five days gather just what you need. On the sixth day, that's the day that you gather twice as much for what you need that day and the next day because the next day you rest from gathering that food. You get, you're resting, you're ceasing from your normal work. And they were to trust that God would provide. They were to trust him to provide for those five days. They were to trust him that he would keep that food good for them on that sixth day that led over into the seventh day. They were to trust him and take him at his word. Trust the Lord to provide and praise Him. That's true for us as well. In Philippians 4, as we gather together, we give of ourselves, even our money. And Paul says, my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So we trust Him. We, we come together on this day where we trust Him to provide and we praise Him as He provides and we lift Him up on this day. The second, a second instruction for us on this day of rest, number two, is a day to praise God for creation. Now, this isn't surprising, right? A day to praise God for creation. That's what we've seen as the pattern in Genesis 1 and 2. But in Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments, it's encapsulated in the Fourth Commandment. Here's what he says in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or even the sojourner who was within your gates. Nobody should be doing any work on this day. Why? For because in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So here it's explicitly spelled out for us. This was God's intention for the pattern for our lives. That's why he created the world in six days and then stopped on the seventh because it was to be a pattern for our lives. That's pretty clear. It's, and it's for everybody. It's not just for Israel. He said, even, even the, the visitor, even the person that comes into your, into your land, and the animals. Now, they were held accountable. Israel was held accountable to, to observe this Sabbath as holy. But it's true for us as well. As we look at creation, there is a temptation in our, in our minds and our hearts to be like the world that worships this creation. And Paul warns us in Romans 1, instead of worshiping creation, give thanks to the Creator. Worship Him for creation. But it's not that we're supposed to be doing nothing on the Sabbath. It's not like God says, don't do a thing. In fact, in Numbers 28, the, uh, the priests in, in Israel had daily sacrifices they were to offer. In the morning, in the evening, they were to offer sacrifices to the Lord. On the Sabbath, they had twice as much work to do. So it wasn't like God said, nobody do anything that day. There is is work to be done on this day, but not our regular work, not the regular work. And so another command, a third one, we're going to see is that it's a day to praise God in fellowship. A day to praise God in fellowship. In Leviticus 19 God says you shall keep the Sabbath and you will reverence his sanctuary. So your mind and your heart are dedicated. They're focused on God in his dwelling place, in his sanctuary. But it's not to be done alone. God says in Leviticus 23.3, he says every Sabbath is a day of solemn rest. Again, not working. A holy convocation. Now, you've probably read that before and you've said, that's nice. I don't know what that means, but good for Israel. (laughs) What's a convocation? A convocation is an assembly. It's a gathering together. This is what God commanded Israel to do on the Sabbath. He said, it is to be a holy convocation, an assembly, a gathering together of all of my people. For Israel, the Sabbath was specifically intended to gather together in this holy assembly, and they were to praise God for provision. They were to praise God for creation together. And we, are, we know that we're, we're told in Hebrews 10, don't, don't neglect the gathering together of ourselves. We know that the church specifically is, is told to gather together. Now, up to this point, we, it maybe hasn't been too surprising, but in Deuteronomy 5, God is going to add another piece to the celebration, the observance on the Sabbath. Deuteronomy 5 is where he gives it to to Moses and where Moses gives the people the second giving of the law. That's what Deuteronomy means, second giving of the law. And in Deuteronomy 5, he, he says, observe the Sabbath. This is kind of going over the Ten Commandments again, but God's adding to it. He says, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, do any, not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your ox, your donkey, any of your livestock. He's kind of cutting off everything, right? <laughs> Make sure nobody. Or the sojourner who's within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. What are they to do? What are they to, what are they to observe in this? In Deuteronomy 5, God says, You shall remember... That you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. He said to Israel, "When you're on that Sabbath day and you're not working, you're not doing your regular work. You're, you're praising God for provision. You're praising Him for creation. You're coming together in a fellowship, and you're praising God for the redemption, the salvation that He has brought to you. He's He's taken you out of Egypt." How much more reason do we have, brothers and sisters, to get together and to praise God for our redemption, for our salvation from sin, the the unconquerable master, the one that we could never fight against? God says, you don't have to because Jesus already did and he won. So when you get together, praise him for that redemption. And and I can't help but read, Ty, I didn't put it in my notes, but I've got to just remind us of what... Paul said to Titus in chapter 2, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possessions who are zealous for good works. We've been redeemed. We've been redeemed. So God set aside this day specifically as a day to stop working. But the the work of worship doesn't stop. Right? Again, stop the normal work. Stop the regular work but there's more work to be done. The work of giving worship. The sacrifice of praise. The sacrifice of a life lived for our God. And so we never stop worshiping. In fact, I believe that's why God creates the new heaven and new earth in a split second and says, all right, let's go. (laughs) Because when we're there, we'll never take a break. We'll never need a break of worshiping God. And that's what we'll be doing. It'll be such an amazing time. But for here and now, God gives us a break from our regular work, and we're to use that for praising Him. Number five, another, a final one, is a, a day to praise God for sanctification. For our for our sanctification, being set aside, being set apart by God for his use. In Ezekiel twenty, God says, Moreover, I gave them my Sabbath as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. God says, The reason I gave them my Sabbath is so that they would know that I am the Lord God, the Yahweh God, who sanctifies them, who sets them apart. Use the Sabbath to learn, to understand that you are set apart. Learn your sanctification. Throughout the Old Testament, particularly in Ezekiel 20 there, but throughout the Old Testament, you see when Israel stops observing the Sabbath, idol worship has either already begun or is right on the heels. As soon as they stop taking this day, as soon as they stop setting aside this day, blessing it and making it holy, they start making something else holy in their minds. Or they already have done that invariably it's a protection against idol worship because your mind and your heart are exclusively focused on the Lord and and you're doing it together with other brothers and sisters and and so second Thessalonians 2 Paul says we ought always to give thanks for you because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification through being set apart by the spirit and belief in the truth if you want a, If you want a helpful psalm, if you want some more instructions about what does this look like to praise God for redemption for being set apart in sanctification psalm ninety two read the superscript, the part that comes before the actual psalm it says psalm ninety two a psalm, a song for the sabbath it's it 's a song and it 's a psalm set aside specifically for the sabbath and, and just the first few verses, it says, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre, for you, O Lord, Yahweh, have made me glad by your work. And so on the Sabbath, we set aside and we're singing and we're giving praise because of the work of the Lord. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy, and it goes on, but just proclaiming God's work and his person and all that he is and all that he's done. His works make us glad. Now, there are many verses that we could go through, many more sections that we could look at, but we'll, we'll end with Isaiah 58 because in Isaiah 58, God was confronting Israel for sinful, hypocritical worship. They, they were going through the motions. They were kind of coming to the Sabbath. They were going through the motions, you know, step by step, but they were not dealing with sin in their life. They just went to worship. God will just take whatever, right? Uh, I'll keep going, but I'm just going to do what I want. So he points out their willful disobedience and gives real life practical wisdom on what Sabbath day, the rest day, looks like. At the end of the chapter, the last two verses, he turns his attention to the Sabbath in particular. He says, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, that means turn around. Stop doing what you're doing. (laughs) Repent. What were they doing? From doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. He tells them of the blessing that they will receive for observing the Sabbath, the the day of ceasing from work. The blessing of that. He says, stop using the holy day for your own business, your comfort, your pleasure. That's not what it's for. Don't use it for your own purposes. Don't just come and say things or sing things or pray things idly, speaking idly. Don't just do that. Use the day the way that God intended for worship of his holy name, for providing, for creating, for redeeming, for sanctifying, in fellowship with brothers and sisters. See, all of that is the opposite of idle talk. All of that is the opposite of anything else we could be doing on this day. This is beneficial talk. This is blessing talk, talking of God, speaking of his works, speaking of his salvation. That's when the blessing comes for this day, when we are blessing the day and setting it aside. That's why Jesus got so upset at the people for accusing him of breaking the Sabbath. He said, you guys missed the whole point. Man was not created for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for man. It's here for us. It's set aside for us by God. For this purpose, so our application, what do we take from this and and try to remember throughout the days and the weeks and the months and the years to come what do we what do we remember to do well we we bless and sanctify the Lord's day we bless and we sanctify this day that, that we've set aside we've worked for six days we've taken this one day to set aside to stop our normal work and to to use it for God to use it for his glory for his praise for all the ways he's provided, all the ways that he's worked to to create everything around us, to save us, to sanctify us for his use as a people together and as individuals. So we celebrate this. It's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. That's why we've moved it over one day. He rose from the dead. Jesus, our Savior, is no longer dead. and So we have this holy convocation, this holy gathering, assembly of people together. Next, Learn and follow God's pattern for life. God's pattern for life, not not the pattern of the world, not the pattern of averages and means and medians and and all of that of mankind. Holiness for God, from God, is more than just not doing bad things. It's more than doing good things. It's being set aside for him in every way, In, in the normal, ordinary ways. Every way we are learning and following God's pattern for his life. That's why he gives us his word. That's why he tells us, who he is and what he wants from us. But know that you cannot follow his pattern. You can't learn him and obey him on your own power in your own ability. You'll never be able to do that yourself. You need the Lord Jesus to take away your sins. You need him to give you his righteousness to make you alive from within, to regenerate you, recreate you all over again from within. Because that's when you're able to love him to grow in him. That's when you'll want to serve him and he'll enable you to do that. He's a good God. He's given us the pattern for our life, for what's good for us, what's beneficial, and it's for his glory. So let's praise him for that. Father, we do praise you. God, in being here, we praise you, Lord, with our mouths as we speak to one another, with our singing. Father, in our prayers, we lift up your name and exalt you. In all of these ways, in giving to you, Father, we exalt you. We recognize your greatness, the, the, the greatness of your power and the greatness of your wisdom. Father, we pray that you would change us, that you would not keep us the same, Father, but that even in our days, in our, in our mornings, in our evenings, Father, that you would work in us and change us to, to be less like our own selves, our old selves, to be less like the world, but, Father, more like your people. God, that brings glory to you, Father, it's hard for us because there are so many things that that want our attention. There are so many draws for us, so many desires of the flesh and of the mind and the eyes. And God, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in us to change us. Father, for those who have not begun that change, Father, that, that process of being more like our Savior and that instantaneous new life within that is made exactly like him, Father, we pray for them, God, that you would work in them in that way. God, that you would use us for that. Father, we praise you. We lift up your name. We exalt you. And we give you all the glory. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.